Okay, so I know that this movie has a famous line, and it's a fun one to say. So, yippee kaye, motherfuck. You don't know that? Welcome to episode two of You Don't Know That, the podcast. As you might have guessed from the intro, today's topic is Die Hard, a movie that I know that line from, and I know that Alan Rickman, aka Snapeity Snape, is in it. Oh, I know that it somehow relates to Christmas because people always debate whether or not it is truly a Christmas movie. And I know that Andy Samberg's character, Jake Peralta, on the delightful show Brooklyn Nine-Nine is obsessed with this movie. Full disclosure, when I was telling a coworker a couple of days ago that this was my plan for episode two, I did mention that I knew that it had the guy from 24, and I have since been proven wrong on that one. Um, 24 had Kiefer Sutherland in it, not Bruce Willis. They are not the same person. I tried to Google face comparison images to make the case in my favor, and it did not work. So there's fact number one before I'd even watched the movie. Bruce Willis is not Kiefer Sutherland. And Bruce Willis did not star in the hit early 2000s, late 90s television show 24, where Jack Bauer had 24 hours to do something on ABC or CBS or Fox. There's no way to know, and I am not going to look that up. Anyway, so from what I know about this movie, it has Bruce Willis, who was in The Fifth Element, another movie I watched recently. And I think Alan Rickman slash Snape is evil and possibly German and takes like a skyscraper hostage. And I don't know, I feel like the vibe of a Bruce Willis action flick means that it was probably took place like somewhere in America. So I would guess New York City. So I'm going with Skyscraper in New York City, and I know that Bruce Willis is in that like white tank top, I think, a good chunk of the film, and he has that iconic line. It's probably some action and some fight scenes with some of Alan Rickman's goons versus Bruce Willis and his goons, maybe, and... Um, I think that's all I got. It's referenced a lot in pop culture, so I feel like that was the general gist of what happens in Die Hard, so I'm not quite sure what I'm necessarily going to learn by watching this, but I was told it was a classic, so here we go. Ashley's out researching things and she'll be back in one, two, three, four. Okay, so pretty immediately in the movie, you can see where the debate comes from about why it's a Christmas movie, and I think my opinion is best summed up by saying that while it is a Christmas movie, it's not a festive movie. Like, it definitely takes place on Christmas Eve, which, a quick aside, 
I think that's like the douchiest thing ever for a company to have their party on Christmas Eve because there were no kids or anything at the party or maybe that's the point, but I don't know. I mean, Christmas is for kids, right? So it just seems kind of shitty to throw your party on the same day. Anyway, so it takes place on Christmas Eve, which they make abundantly clear in the first five minutes because everyone says Merry Christmas and there's Christmas music playing in the airport. And Holly talks about it on the phone with her daughter. And Argyle, the cab driver, plays like an R&B version of a Christmas song. And the guard, when John McClane gets there, starts whistling jingle bells. And yeah, it's in your face. It's Christmas Eve. It's definitely Christmas Eve. It's Christmas Eve, by the way, in LA. So immediate correction number two is definitely not in New York City. Overall, the point that I'm trying to make here is that I agree. It's a Christmas movie. It takes place on Christmas Eve. I guess it just doesn't have quite the same tone as Elf or The Santa Claus or It's a Wonderful Life. It definitely has a lot more murder, but I'm not mad at it. I also gotta say that overall, I think I kind of nailed my early description. I mean, much more than I normally can for a movie. And that's purely because of how often this movie is referenced in popular culture. Although while watching it for the first time as an adult, this movie seems kind of like your classic action plot line. This movie at the time was the first of its kind. And I can see why it was revolutionary because if this was the movie that started it all, It's clear how all action movies are inspired by this film. The other thing that I got right uh, was that Bruce Willis is indeed in a tank top for 90% of this movie. Where I was slightly off was in my generous description of the tank top as white. It does start out that way. It does not end that way. He gets um, a little grimy, shall we say, throughout the movie. Um, But the cool thing is, apparently that tank top is in the Smithsonian now. So I think that must be why I know it, because I don't know why I remember a tank top so distinctly, like when I think about this movie, because it's not on the DVD cover, but it's just so ingrained in my mind and it has to be from the Smithsonian. So if you haven't seen this movie, I guess I should give a very brief kind of summary. So. Die Hard follows um, Bruce Willis, who plays a character named John McClane, who is a police officer with the NYPD, and he is estranged from his wife, who also has custody of his two children, and they move to LA about six months before this movie takes place. She works at this, like, super bougie company that I don't exactly know what they sell, but it's like a Japanese-owned business. This business is having their Christmas party on Christmas Eve, which, like I said, is such a dick move, but whatever. And the Christmas party gets taken over by this group of guys with guns who is led by Hans Gruber, who is played by Alan Rickman, who we all know and love as Snape. So initially, everyone thinks that Gruber is a terrorist, but it becomes clear pretty quickly into the movie that... um. He's actually interested in the building's vault because it has $640 million in bearer bonds in it, which I had never heard of. But it's, it's the same as a security bond, but apparently they are called bearer bonds because they are unregistered. 
So there's like no record of the owner or the transactions. So I guess maybe it's just easier to steal. I don't know. I mean, not easy. There's a whole movie about how difficult it was to steal these particular bonds, but you know what I mean. So Hans Gruber and his German goons that he has with him uh, take over this Christmas party, um, have them as hostages while they try to rob it, and John McLean really goes out of his way to make sure that that doesn't happen. So that's kind of a general summary of the movie without necessarily spoiling it, so you can enjoy it for yourself if you want to. And honestly, I think I would recommend it. It was a fun watch. I mean, again, if you're watching it as an adult, it's just kind of your classic action movie. But I mean, it still did a great job. So, hey. Anyway, so now I'm going to get more into kind of the behind the scenes of the making of Die Hard because I looked it up and there was actually some pretty interesting facts that kind of made the movie a little bit more fun. Before we get started talking about behind the scenes, though, I do want to give a quick shout out to the Netflix docu-series called The Movies That Made Us, or their episode that's actually on Die Hard, because a couple of these facts I got from there, and I think if you like this movie, it's definitely worth a watch, because it's kind of cool to hear about why this movie had such an impact, and just kind of how they made it from the people that made it, instead of this girl that doesn't know what she's talking about. But also, please listen to this girl that doesn't know what she's talking about because otherwise she's recording a podcast into the ether for nothing. So, you know what? Endless Void, ignore everything I just said. So, the movie was made in 1988 and when Bruce Willis is getting driven around LA, it really does have that kind of 80s vibe. And I don't know if it makes sense, but it just like, made me nostalgic for the old Los Angeles. I mean, I wasn't alive in the 80s and I don't even live in California anymore, but I don't know, something about it. It was just like smoggy and hazy and had all the old 80s cars. And I don't know, it just like made me want to go to the beach, but maybe that's just a couple months of quarantine talking. I don't know. So you have to keep in mind the time period with the special effects that they used, one of which was actually this kind of panoramic city view that they showed from the top of Nakatomi Tower, which, by the way, does not actually exist in LA. I mean, the tower itself does, but it's actually called Fox Plaza, which is hilarious because apparently Fox was also the people who made this movie, so they charged themselves for the use of their own tower to film in, which genuinely was under some construction at the time, but also had some people working in it. So the producers weren't allowed to make any noise till after 5 p.m. or the lawyers on the upper floors would get like pretty pissed, which like is kind of hilarious and kind of like a super LA thing to just be unfazed by people filming a movie near you. I assume it's probably the same way in New York City and kind of other major cities where filming is common, but it was just like, Jesus fucking Christ, Bruce Willis making noise on the 13th floor again, as you're like riding your elevator with your briefcase up to the 26th floor, just makes me chuckle. But anyway, so they kept showing this panoramic view from the top of the tower, and it's actually not real, which maybe that's why LA looked more beautiful than normal, because it wasn't actually LA, which would make a lot of sense but um it was like this hand painted 
sort of scenery with blinking lights and moving cars that was apparently kind of top of the line for the time that this movie was filmed. So that's why they cut to it so often in the movie, and then apparently it's used in some future sets as well, which I thought was interesting. The other thing that I thought was pretty cool about this movie is that it was actually Alan Rickman's first kind of major role in film, and he was super nervous that he wasn't going to do well and that he did not belong in an action movie, but I thought he was kind of a perfect choice to play Hans Gruber. He was the right mix of classy and scary and that like weird amount of uneasiness you get when a villain is well composed. Do you know what I mean? Like it's easy to see why crazy people do crazy things, but it's more unnerving to see somebody be sane and calm while they cause so much chaos in a movie. Like, does that make sense? But that's, I mean, that's like how I always feel when I watch those sorts of things. Like those are always the scariest villains to me or antagonists, I guess I should say, in any sort of film or literature that I consume. In order to kind of focus myself on what aspects of behind the scenes I wanted to focus on, because you can go in a lot of directions with this, and I'm sure people have, I wrote down the things that I noticed the most while I watched this movie. And one of the things that I wrote down on my piece of paper was just the word glass with a bunch of question marks after it, because it felt like they went through so much glass in this movie. And as Bruce Willis aptly said at some point during the film, who gives a fuck about glass? But the answer is, uh, these fucking producers, man, because the budget on glass that they spent on this movie, I just feel like is insane. And to be fair, I don't make movies. I don't know the normal glass budget, but they spent $130,000 on the amount of glass that they went through and broke in order to make these scenes. And to clarify, that's $130,000 in the 80s. So I'm sure it was like an outrageous amount now. And there's one scene where Bruce Willis like walks through glass with his bare feet, which I think is actually going to haunt my dreams forever because it seemed like such a nightmare. But he actually wore rubber feet over his own feet in order to film that scene. And apparently, if you really, really watch the movie, you can actually tell the difference between his rubber feet and his normal feet at certain points in the film. And during that scene, which again will haunt my nightmares forever, they actually initially wanted to make it more graphic and had kind of like more graphic sounds of Bruce Willis like pulling the glass out. like out of his foot, which is just, again, fucking horrifying. So I think it had uh, just the right amount of ooh-ness, you know what I mean? Like, ooh. One of the other things that I wrote down was John McClane seems weirdly intimate with the inside of an elevator shaft, which I stand by that plot point. I don't know how often local police are physically opening elevators, but I don't know, that just always has seemed like more of a job for the fire department or elevator technicians, but he was a pro. Like at one point he like pried open the doors and then had this like metal rod that he had to like shove up further into the door to flip some sort of switch. And then he shoved a screwdriver in 
and then climb through the elevator shaft. And I don't know if that's legitimately how you do it, or if there's some sort of training, or if everyone has this elevator shaft knowledge, but I was like objectively impressed with John McClane's elevator shaft knowledge. That being said, there is a scene where Bruce Willis slash John McClane, um, I keep wanting to say John McCain, and that would be a very different movie. John McClane falls down kind of this ventilation shaft, and apparently in that scene, the stuntman actually really did miss his mark and fall a lot further than he should have. And that mistake was actually kept in the final cut of the film, which I gotta say, it did make for a good shot. So it was kind of worth it, I gotta say. And they actually do that at another point in the film, which is a key point. So spoiler alert if you have not yet seen this movie from 1988. But I don't know why I say it that way, because I also hadn't seen this movie from 1988. So genuine spoiler alert if you don't want to know. Skip forward. I don't know. Go for a minute. Make it safe. Okay. As Hans Gruber would say, I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four. And then I'm going to talk about the spoiler. So three, two, one. I'm talking about it. Here we go. So (laughs) that was so dumb. Anyway, um, so in the scene where Alan Rickman's character Hans Gruber dies, his face looks so shocked as he falls. And that was actually also an accident. So, I mean, not necessarily an accident, but they told Alan Rickman that they would drop him on three, but they actually dropped him on the count of one. So that surprise is real. And again, my nightmare. And again, not cool, man. Like that's such a trust fall that he was trusting you with and you didn't do it. Like, it's like, I feel so bad for Alan Rickman because that fear looked so real and he as a person seems like such a nice person, even if Hans's character is kind of an asshole, but he was actually dropped like 20 feet for that. So a surprise drop from 20 feet, just, man, it feels like a dick move. But at the same time, the shot was just, Interestingly, one of the other things that they did in this movie in order to try and get a more realistic feel was that they used extra loud blanks, which if you don't know is a type of bullet that doesn't actually fire a bullet but still makes the bang essentially. They used extra loud ones on the set, which led to a couple of interesting kind of side effects. Number 1, And less interestingly, but still interesting, was Alan Rickman was not a fan of the sound that they made. So every time that he fired one of these, he would actually flinch a little bit, which is kind of adorable. But they actually had to cut away from Hans Gruber because it took away from his character um, to flinch every time that he fired a weapon. More interestingly and long term was that these extra loud blanks caused permanent hearing damage for Bruce Willis. And I think it was about two-thirds in one of his ears, he said. And in an interview, he said that now he has kind of an annoying habit of always going like, well, which is so sad. Um, At the time that this movie came out, he was known as only kind of being a comedic actor. And he wasn't even close to being the first choice to be the main character in this movie, which is hilarious because apparently... 
Now there are a bunch of sequels and books and video games and his iconic phrase of yippee motherfucker, is, again, one of the most iconic movie lines of all time, I would say. It would definitely be in the top 100. And you go through all of this, and you get your big break, and you make it to the top, and you are in this film where you got paid $5 million, and you almost go deaf for it. Like, isn't that crazy? I just feel like that's crazy. I just thought it was interesting that both Alan Rickman and Bruce Willis had had some successes before this film, but both got their big break in this one and went on to become iconic actors. I just think that's kind of a cool series of events for two people to kind of catch their big break at the exact same time. I don't know. I guess it's just because it especially felt like they were at different points in their career. And it was just cool to watch how this film turned them both into legends. So I guess it just means that it's never too late for you to find your big break, no matter what it is you're trying to break through. So yeah, that'll sum it up, I think, for Die Hard. So I guess, even though it's June... Merry Christmas, everyone, and I'll see you for New Year's. If you enjoyed this episode and are looking forward to more, please consider subscribing and leaving a review. If you would like to follow us on social media for updates and photos, you can follow us at You Don't Know Pod, that's You Don't Know P O D, on Instagram and Twitter. If you have a recommendation for something for me to research for you, or a story about you not knowing something until way later in life than you should have, there's no judgment here, and you can email me at you don't know that, the podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.